Welcome to the Weekly Deep Dive Podcast on the Add-On Education Network. The podcast where we take a look at the weekly Come Follow Me discussion and try to add a little insight and unique perspective. I am your host, Jason Lloyd, here in the studio with my friend and this show's producer, Nate Pfeiffer. What's up? Hey, it's been a while since uh, I've heard that introduction <laughs> music. Honestly, like it's I wanted to do more Genesis, but I'm... Um... I'm really busy in life, dog. Yeah, I get that. In fact, for you guys out there at home that were expecting this podcast to hit maybe a day earlier, thanks for your patience. We we we, we kind of got slammed there at the end of the week and just didn't quite have enough energy to get it in on time. We so. did a bonus episode for you. We, we tried to make up for it. We did get the bonus episode in there. But dude, last night, I'm sorry, Jason. I, it, you can tell him the truth. It was my bad. I was just, I was beat after a week of... Long hours at work, and it was just like, we're going to have to do this late, but we'll still get it in. I was just as happy to call it a night. Okay. <laughs> it's good. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, good that we, uh, it's good that we have time to get in here, though, and get this out to you guys now. So last week, at the, uh, towards the end of the week, I did find an app on, on the Android. I, I think it's on either Android or iPhone, though. Come Follow Me app. And I opened it up, and it had all sorts of cool resources for the Come Follow Me and where you can look and get some more information. And they had a section there of resources for adults. And I saw listed a bunch of podcasts, which I thought were really good, but what I found missing was our podcast. What? What? (laughs) I I know we haven't put a whole lot of resources into getting the word out there. We're we're just kind of having some fun, but we do feel like, I don't know, I'm really enjoying Old Testament. So I, I shot them an email and asked if they would consider including our podcast. So I thought maybe I'd hit you guys up, our listening audience. If you appreciate the show, maybe it, it, maybe hit them up as well and see if, if you don't mind taking literally three minutes out of your day. Their email is contact at comefollowmefoundation.org and, and just see if uh, if they would consider adding the weekly deep dive as part of their. I don't know. Come follow me. Resources. Maybe you can give them just a brief testimonial of like, look. One of the dudes is super, super, super smart. The other is super, super good looking. And so between the two, between the two, they have this total, and I'm not even going to tell you which one is which, but between the two of them, they have this really great Come Follow Me podcast. Maybe if you could say something like that. What do you think, Jason? Sounds fantastic. They do great Genesis covers. Occasionally, we'll throw in a really bad melodica version of a Jurassic Park theme. That, that was a good episode. That was. I, that's still probably my favorite episode. Sharks in Heaven. Sharks. That one just took itself over. That one just. That one. That one. That one derailed itself. All right. What are we talking about this week, Jason? This week we get to get into Abraham. In fact, this week in the next couple of weeks, I believe we we get to talk about Abraham, and it's kind of cool. In between Noah and Abraham on the Come Follow Me resources, they almost have a little bonus episode, if you will, where it talks about covenants. Oh, yeah, I read that today. It was awesome. Yeah, and covenant is such a big part of Abraham as we're talking about the Abrahamic covenant, but it's also a big part of Noah and something we didn't even mention at all when we were talking about Noah the last two uh, episodes that we did, the, the covenant that God makes with him after the flood is over. So covenant is going to be a large part of what we're talking about today. And I don't know if we want to start right off with covenants. Let's so. do it. Hey, yeah, I, let's, let's do it. 
in order to make a covenant, the verb that you use in Hebrew with making a covenant is cut. You always cut a covenant. And in fact, berit, the Hebrew word for covenant, comes from a word in a sense that means cutting. So you're almost cutting a cutting when you establish a covenant. And God establishes a covenant with Noah. He's going to establish a covenant with Abraham. And these covenants, interesting enough, there's also another word used to describe the covenant relationship. So not not the actual act of making a covenant, but a covenant relationship. The Hebrew word is yada, and yada means to know. And this should be interesting to you because this same verb to know is the same verb they use when they say Adam knew his wife and they bear Cain or Abel or Seth or whatever the case may be. And I'm sure you're all familiar with with this verb in that sense when you say to know somebody in the biblical sense means to have intimacy with that person. Well, it's a little bit more than that. To know someone, yada, isn't exactly just to know someone carnally. Really, it's to have a covenant relationship with that person, which is probably why it's used in a sensual sense. Because they're in, in a wedding ceremony, the, the act that—we talked a little bit about this with the ten virgins, but the act itself, the ceremony, is the act of consummation. Consummating that marriage, having that affair, that, that intimate contact, is what seals that relationship, what makes that covenant active. And so God's covenant relationship is, is a knowledge of his people— he knows his people. They have a covenant with him. They, they're, they're tied to each other. And perhaps that explains it a little bit more when we talk about getting sealed in the church. When you're sealed, you're not just sealed to your spouse. You're sealed to God in this covenant-binding relationship. And as we talked about the, the, the blood atonement or the blood covenant, excuse me, when a man goes to his wife back in the ancient Israel practice and they would bring out the bed sheets to show the blood as a sign that they have sealed the deal, this idea that, that blood goes into sealing this relationship, similar to the blood of Christ being that, that which was shed in order to seal us to God, to make that work. And hopefully this gives you a, a, an idea When God starts talking about the relationship he has with Israel and his people, and he refers to Israel as his wife, as as a virgin who's faithful to him. And if Israel ever wanders away from that covenant relationship, he he describes it again in terms of, of cheating like a prostitute or a whore, someone who has had an affair with a different husband because they've established a different covenant by worshiping a different God. So, so many times throughout the Bible, this covenant relationship with God is, is very comparable to fidelity within marriage, if that makes any sense. And maybe that gives you a little context to when God and you come to him at the end, and if he says, I know you not. That word to know in a sense, is what he's saying, I have no contractual obligation to you. Hmm. The covenant has been broken or, or not been established. If you don't have that, contact, that, 
that contractual relationship, you don't have that covenant, then then there is no binding. There is no he he is not obligated or or contractually bound to to save you. So these covenants are important. And and going back to the idea of these cutting of covenants, uh, oftentimes a covenant is recorded in a clay tablet or something that can be used to refer to. The tablet is stored in the temple in society so that people could go to there and they could look at the terms of the agreement. And oftentimes the agreement stipulates how often the agreement needs to be read in order for people to keep it fresh in their minds. And so I've got, I've got here a Hittite treaty. And, and it's, sim, it's, it's interesting because in the story where we're talking about Abraham and the covenant that he's going to be making with God, you have this little interruption, if you will, of Abraham going to war with, with a bunch of different kings. And, and this, the, the, the fascinating thing about it is the treaties that kings make is, is very similar to the covenant that God makes. Treaties and covenants go, go hand in hand. So this is a Hittite treaty. And, and first, it has an introduction phase where it introduces the speaker says, here, here am I, this is who, and then after that, it goes into a historical prologue, so it gives a little bit of historical background to what's making the, the conditions of the treaty. Then it has the stipulations. You are required to, your, our friends are your friends, our enemies are your enemies. When we go to war, you go to war. If you, um, if it's a vassal relationship, I, we require that you pay so much tribute this often, and these are the conditions. And then with that, it has the document, says, uh, from, from this Hittite treaty, moreover, let someone read these, read thee this tablet, which I have made for thee three times every year. So as we look at the Old Testament as a covenant, and we look at the New Testament as a covenant, and we look at the Book of Mormon as covenants that God has made, or another word for covenant testaments, these testaments that God have made, Part of the stipulation is that they are renewed, that they are refreshed, that they are kept fresh, that you read them regularly. And then it has the name of the gods that are enforcing it, and then it has the curses and the blessings that are associated with with said covenant. So it it kind of outlines all of this in this legal document, and it's very similar to what what God's going to be doing. But part of this treaty is the idea that to consummate it, where it's not a marriage contract, you're not talking about knowing in a sense— to 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 make this type of covenant a treaty or these covenants with God, it required sacrifice. And you would take these animals and you would cut them in half, which is part of why covenants have to be cut. You cut the animals in half, you slide the two halves apart, and then the weaker party of the two is required to pass through the pieces of the two animals. So if a, a larger country has, has accepted a vassal kingdom, they've come, they've conquered, and they say, look, we will offer you protection, we will offer you our soldiers, and we will, we will help offer law and enforcement and order. In exchange, you will, you will send us your soldiers when we need to fight, you will send us this much grain, this much tribute, and if you don't, then just like these two pieces that have been cut and separated that you are walking through, May you be cut and hmm. separated and cut off from the land, destroyed. So th- this is how covenants were made 
in the ancient world. And we'll see Abraham making this covenant. It's a very beautiful passage of Scripture because as he prepares the various animals and cuts them in half, he sits and tends them to keep the birds away, the flies away, because he's waiting for God to show up and establish this covenant with him. So it's, it's a very neat passage. But aside from just the Abrahamic covenant, I want to show you where this covenant has direct impact in Israel and even in our lives today and where we see it in some other scriptures. Israel, when they come into the land of promise, they pass through two mountains, and they have six tribes go on the peak of one mountain, and these six tribes read out the cursings. And then they have six other tribes come over on the other mountain, and they read forth the blessings. And then Israel passes between the two mountains, and just like the animal being cut in half, in this sense, it's the land that's cut in half. And it says, these are the conditions of the covenant that God is establishing with Israel. They will be my people, and in exchange, they will worship me. I will protect them, I will take care of them, but they will worship me, they will, say, they will not have any other gods, and so on and so forth, the law of Moses. And if they break the conditions of this covenant, this cutting, then just as the land is separated and, and pulled apart, may they be torn out of the land in which they live. May they be separated. And you see that with the Assyrians coming in and pulling Israel up into the lands of the north. And you see the Babylonians coming in and pulling Judah out of the land into, into Babylon because they failed to live up to their terms of their, their covenant. When the saints came to Utah, you have this very similar Israel-like setting where you have this Dead Sea of Salt, you have this River Jordan, and you have the Fresh Lake Sea, uh, the, the Utah Lake. And they have to come through Immigration Canyon where, again, they're passing through two different mountains and they're reestablishing Israel and the Israelic covenant with God as they're coming into this, this promised land. It's kind of neat that way. We see it in the Book of Mormon with the title of Liberty. When Moroni takes his coat and he writes on it the terms of this in memory of our God, of our wives, of our children, of our freedom, we are covenanting to protect these values, and if we fail to do so, may we be destroyed. And it's interesting because he takes his coat after writing it and he rends it. He rips the coat. And then he throws the rent coat. It gets trampled under feet of the people, right? This is a covenant, a cutting. They're taking it. They're ripping it. And if they live up to it, may their lives, their freedom, their wives be protected. And if not, may it all be destroyed. And perhaps the most personal sign of this covenant making that we miss in, in our everyday lives is on Sunday when we sit in church and the priest takes the bread, a symbol of the body of Christ, and tears it, cuts it. And, and the covenant there is that if we take upon us the name of Christ, and if we follow him and keep his commandments, that, that we will be saved like him, that he will present us to the Father, that we will be atoned. But if not, as it says in Doctrine and Covenants 19, 
May we have to suffer even as he did. May our bodies be broken. May we have to go through what he went through. And so we see this same Old Testament covenant pattern that's established in in societies outside of the Bible, that's established with Noah, which established with Abraham. It plays throughout history, and, and it comes down even to our own modern times. We still see it. And in fact, when you hear the term cut a deal, that's where it comes from. This idea that a covenant requires a cutting in order to establish this pact. I don't it's amazing. Know. Did, I, did I explain that all right? Did that... I think it's fantastic. And I, I mean, again, not to get like too like hypergraphic or anything like that, but e- like even you said, like the way that a, a marriage was consummated, right? Like there was blood involved in that because there was still a cutting or a separating even in that process as well too. That that God, I mean, when when Jesus died, was the temple, the veil was rent, right? Um, you have so many examples of this. I feel like it's 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 a pretty you know, it's some pretty incredible imagery that, like you said, I, I think maybe the only question would be is like why. It's a good question. And and I think I mean you It's like something it's it's like in a weird sort of way, it's like why does there need to be like this violent thing that has to accompany you know what I mean? Other than is it is it solely for the illustration of if one side of this does not hold up their end, this violence comes back to you. I think there's a couple parts to this. One that an animal is sacrificed or a life has to be given in order for that covenant to be established, particularly in the sense of treaties. A treaty did not come simply because one country came to the other one and said, I'm bigger than you, let's let's make this deal. (laughs) It's because one country came and fought with the other one and subjected them, and lives were lost. And let's remember the lives were lost. Okay, I like that. Let's try to make those lives sacred and, and, and means something, that there's going to be coming a higher order out of this and, and an understanding so that more lives aren't going to be lost. And in a greater sense, that through the blood of Christ can these covenants be made. Because if it wasn't for a God that was sacrificed, we have no, no hope of obtaining these blessings. It was because of the blood that was shed that this covenant can stand. It was because of the atonement that we can hope for this great blessing. Was it not for the sacrifice of a life, the life of a God, there would be no reason or claim, legal claim, right for us to have any of this? Awesome. I think I think that's very thorough and very well explained. And, it, and in some cases where it didn't involve animal sacrifice, you would have like a stick, and you take that stick and you would write the terms on both sides or the terms of them, and then you would break the stick and the two parties would keep it. So you're still cutting it. But then as proof that that's the treaty, you can take the two and they match together. So the two different paths, you kind of see that in, in maybe a, a more hokey sense today with like the lockets that, that you have or like a broken heart where the two heart halves fit together, Right. But I also think, I and you kind of brought this back to the marriage, for what it's worth, in the very beginning, God made Eve by cutting him, 
excuse me, cutting her from Adam. This idea that this cutting, the separation, that Eve came from flesh, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, that there was this separation and that together they become one again, this restoration, that this cutting, this marriage covenant, that these two halves can reunite and join themselves in intimacy, becoming one. And that when they come together, this covenant relationship, they're reminded of that covenant relationship. It's in very much establishing a new covenant that by me coming and giving part of my life to you, or by me coming and receiving part of your life as you put it in me, that we covenant to be together to bring life into this world. And there's a whole lot that goes with that act, this idea that this is a sacrament, a very sacred, special relationship, a renewing of something that from the very beginning, these two halves were meant to be together, to be joined together, that they were cut apart, but they are meant to be restored, reunified. Well, and even the language that we've talked about before, where where, where a man is commanded to cleave unto his wife. Yes. Like even that word again, cleave, hints back at that. That cutting. That cutting. And and like you said, that, that to cleave unto each other to be able to be separated or cut off, um, you know, from the other less important things to, like you said, also come back together to really sit in and participate in, in godliness, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like the act of creation. And, and even as you were just saying that, just the last couple of things, it just makes you think of the creation, the separation of light and dark, the separation of land and, and sea, just... So much of the, so much of the creative and the creation process is a cutting or a separation. And I think that that maybe even adds that final bit of insight to the idea of of why a covenant is involved, or a cutting is involved, or a separation is involved in a covenant. Excellent insight. Uh, sweet. Sorry. Anything else you want to add to this, or should we move on? Uh, maybe the only thing. There's also there's also some tie-ins to these words with with eating, not just cutting, but because you're cutting with your teeth, they they have a sense of eating. Okay. And oftentimes with sacrifice or with a covenant making, there's a feast involved or or a a, a sacramental, if you will, a, a partaking of food, and the idea that you're joining with another party and sharing food with them to establish this covenant, and oftentimes the priest in the temple that someone would bring their offering and and the priest would would take a piece of that meat and eat it representative of God after sharing, it was burned right yeah after yeah after it's burned you take this and you burned offering you're altered on offered on the altar you burn it but you then share this meal with God God takes part of it and whether it's the burnt part that's going up as smoke as a sweet savor unto the Lord as we'll see as we get into this with temple talk later on through the year or whether it's the priest who's partaking of that meal on part of the people while the smoke goes to God, or the priest is taking on the role of God eating part of this food while the people take their part and, and they share in this together, that there's something about sharing a meal together that, that, that solidifies this covenant relationship. I mean, how much of that is still just so much part of our culture even now, though? Yes. Which I love, by the way, which is part of the reason that you have your wedding feasts. You, we eat when when it comes to Christmas, when it comes to Thanksgiving, yes. when it comes to any kind of celebration. So many of our holidays are accompanied with a meal, and, and that's really great insight as to why that is, too. And, and it's a good segue into the next part I want to talk about. Okay. 
uh, going to Abraham. We're going to talk about him, but part of understanding him is understanding his youth and where he comes from. And the book of Abraham gives us some insight when it talks about his dad sending him to a priest to be sacrificed. And, and you don't see that anywhere in the book of Genesis, but you do find it in all sorts of extra biblical sources that validate it and come back and say, you know, Joseph Smith got this right. Say what you want about him. When he talks about Abraham being offered as a sacrifice when he was younger, there's, there's some validity to that statement. So I want to go to the story of Abraham as a youth, because we don't see that here in, in Genesis. We're not going to see that in the book of Abraham, but it does fit well with the story and gives us a window, a peek into who he was. So his father would build idols. He would build gods. And, and at this time, it's not too far after the flood. It's not too far after the Tower of Babel. In fact, some stories put the Tower of Babel at the same time of when Abraham was fairly young. So he would have been alive at the Tower of Babel, according to some, some datings. But as, as, they, as Nimrod was very influential, and, and as the power started to spread, they started to believe in creating all of these idols and all of these gods. And Abraham's father had built all sorts of gods and had kind of his own little sanctuary, if you will, where he had the head god, the father god, sitting at the top, and all of these other gods subservient to him. And this idea... It's cool in the ancient world for what it's worth. You would have a father of the gods, and you would have the children of the gods, the B'nai Elohim. And the children of the gods were the council of gods. So you had this father and this this council assembly, that always associated with, with this polytheism back then. Anyhow, Abraham being curious, and it's, it tells us in the book of Abraham, he wanted to know who God was, where he came from. He had greater questions, and he wanted to know more about the priesthood and where this came from and where it's going. And, and he goes to his dad and asks him, and his dad tells him about these, these gods and introduces him to all these idols. So Abraham concocts this plan. He goes to his mom, and, and his mom kind of plays favorites. She likes Abraham, and, and, he, and she prepares him some savory meat, it says. And he takes this savory meat, and he puts it down in front of all of the gods. And, and as he sits there and he studies them, he says, these, these gods are, are dumb. They're, they're just made out of wood. They're not, they're not going to do anything. So Abraham then takes an, an axe, and he goes through and just destroys all of them, except for the father god. He, he hatches them all, destroys them, and then he puts the axe in the hands of the head god. And then his dad comes by, and Abraham's still sitting in the room with the gods, and he says, Abraham, what have you done? And Abraham says, what do, you, what do you mean, me? I'll tell you exactly what I did. I grabbed this savory meat, I put it in front of all of the gods, and all of these little gods stretched out their hands to eat the meat before the big god, and the big god was jealous that they wouldn't wait for him, so he slaughtered them all with the axe. And his dad says, what, what are you talking about? I made these with my own hands. They're wood. They're dumb. They can't do anything. And then Abraham says, that's my point. Why are you worshiping them? Yeah. Boom. <laughs> he he kind of drops the truth bomb on his dad. And he falls out of favor a little bit there. And, and, and his dad, part of this thing is Abraham resent, represents a push for worshiping the one true God. And, and he gets subjected to, he's taken to the priest to be destroyed because he, is try, he represents a challenge to 
the, the, this new authority, this different gods, and he's challenging these gods, and, and that puts him on the outs where he's going to be offered as a sacrifice. Okay. So Abraham has to flee his, his childhood. His father comes with him for part of the journey. He makes it to Haran. And it's interesting, his father doesn't leave past Haran. Abraham keeps going with his nephew Lot uh, down into the land of Canaan. And some scholars look at that and say this represents that that his dad at some times had the right heart, but just couldn't commit all the way, couldn't make the full journey all the way down to the promised land where Abraham was willing to take the whole journey. One, one cool thing in the book of Abraham, it does say that God calls Abraham to go down and to teach the people and to minister to them. And when you go into the book of Genesis, even in the book of Abraham, it doesn't talk about that too much or his role as a minister. Instead, you kind of get this, this brooding character that's sitting alone in his tent somewhere that, that's not doing a whole lot to try to save people, if you will. He's not like the Noah that's going out and trying to preach the gospel to everyone. How, however, in some of these accounts, it talks about Noah in, in Haran because of his morals, because of how he lives and the way he deals with people, dealing justly, he stands out, and his religious belief stands out, and he's constantly referred to as a stranger in a foreign land, and he doesn't just assimilate himself into the people, and I think we'll talk about this a little bit more as we get into to Lot and the decisions that he makes, but because Abraham stands out in Haran, the text says that a lot of people came to Abraham and asked him about what he believed, and asked him about his his understanding, his background, and who he was, and why he was the way he was. And Abraham ministered to a lot of people to where he gathered a large following of people that came with him. So when we get to the story of Abraham going to rescue Lot from the kings that went to battle against the kings of Sodom and the kings of Gomorrah, Abraham has with him an army of people to go and serve, and you have to wonder, where did this army of people come? Abraham doesn't force anyone to go with him. He calls for volunteers, and and he gets over 300 men willing to volunteer with him. And if you're talking about men, women, and children, only 300, plus they're just volunteers, most likely Abraham's group consists of well over 600 people. So he's, he's... and, and we're talking about a time that's transitioning from the patriarch period where, where you have no real rules. Everyone just lives a good life by themselves. Well, after the flood, now all of a sudden people are worried about the chaos. They know if we descend into chaos and the world becomes chaos, then God's going to let chaos reign and the world's going to get destroyed. In order to protect the world from death and destruction again, we need to impose order on it. And you start to see the rise of kingdoms now instead of just this patriarchal line. You'll have the kingdom of the Canaanites, the kingdom of the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Egyptians. All of these nations start popping up. And the kings are claiming their right to rule from God to impose order to keep and ensure that people don't descend back into chaos. It's their duty to represent God and impose order. Abraham, not wanting to to, to necessarily be part of some other kingdom, he's trying to find the kingdom of God, almost like the kingdom of Enoch, right? This, This once was lost that was his line going back through Shem to Noah to everybody. Where is this and how do I find it? 
And that's where all of these promises from God are going to come and saying, through your seed, I will create this new kingdom. And that's, that's what's going to be so important in these scriptures we're talking about it over and over again, through your seed, through your seed. And it's important to note that his wife, Sarah, is barren. So, so he does have this large following. He is building his own nation, but he doesn't have his own dynasty yet. He doesn't have his own kingdom. And this is going to be kind of the adventure of how he gets there. And maybe we should, uh, maybe we should talk about Sarai, Sarah, for a minute. Because it says here in Genesis, when it goes through the different lines and it mentions Abram, it says, and his wife, Sarah, Sarai, was barren. And that's an important distinction. And a lot is said about Sarai, and a lot is said is about this barrenness versus having this children. And a lot is also said, by the way, about how beautiful she is. So, Nate, do you want me to throw this at you? Like, what, what is the significance of being barren, or why be barren, or what do you take out of being barren, or do you want me to run with this? Saw you, baby boy. <laughs> To me, let's go to Abraham, Av is the Hebrew for father. Ram is the Hebrew for exalted. So his, his name means exalted father. And if we try to think of who is the exalted father, well, God, God is the one who's got his exaltation. He is the father of all. Abraham is symbolic of God. And if Abraham is symbolic of God, who is the groom, the husband, then Sarai in this case is going to be symbolic of Israel or the church, right? She's the church is the bride. And, and it's really cool. You see this, you see this symbolism in Isaiah when, when it talks about Christ on the cross. And it says, Who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. Who's going to declare the begatting of Christ? Who begat after Christ? There is no begatting. He was cut off from the land of the living. But when you shall make his soul an offering for sin, then he shall see his seed. Even though he was cut off, he has seed, posterity, that are born to him, God, through the atonement, because you make his soul an offering for sin. He gave his life to his bride, the bride being the church, And the church is able to bear offspring through the life of Christ, through the blood of Christ and the atonement, through these covenants, the yada, the getting to know, the the, the covenant relationship with the church and Christ powers the bride to be able to have children. So that as you go into Isaiah 54, more are the children of the barren than the married wife. This, This barren that couldn't have children, now that Christ has given his life, is going to empower the church that by herself cannot have children, but with God now is able to have children and not just children, but a never ending supply of children. As the stars of the universe or the sands of the sea, you shall not be able to number them because there is no end to their increase. It's internal increase. So I think that's the significance of, of Sarah. And you look at their names because their names are going to get changed. Avram meaning exalted father. But when he is going to now have a child who God keeps 
promising that this is going to be the seed. He's, his name is changed to Av-Raham. Av still means father, but Raham, instead of Ram, means multitude. So he becomes father of a multitude. And Sarai means my princess, but her name is changed to Sarah, which is just princess. So now it's not just Abraham's princess. She's the princess for all of the offspring that's going to come. So the name shift is not just exalted father and my princess, this relationship with the two of them, but now it's a relationship with their seed, a father of a multitude and a princess over a multitude that now they're going to have an increase that never ends. So it's kind of a kind of an interesting deal. And you look at Abraham's life and his relationship with Sarah, and you will see the entire history of Israel play out. Here's what I mean. When Abraham, first he's going to go into the land of Egypt. Just like, and, and why is he going into the land of Egypt? Because there's a famine in the land, and the Lord commands him to go down there. And he goes into the land of Egypt, and his wife is taken from him by Pharaoh, who tries to marry her, but can't take her to bed. He has some problems there. The Lord sends plagues, and because of the plagues, he reaches out to Abraham and says, what do I do? And he finds out it's Abraham's wife and says, here, take her and take all of our gold. Here's a bunch of money and leave. And Abraham becomes rich. What does that have to do with Israel? Israel, again, Sarah, the wife, she's going to go down into Egypt at the time of Joseph because of a famine in the land. And the Egyptians are going to try to, to, to be the husband, to get them to worship their gods, to worship their Pharaoh, so that when Moses comes and says, let my people come worship their own God, let the bride return to the husband, Pharaoh says, no, this is my bride right? And it's going to take plagues, and it's going to take disasters, and then he's going to let them go. But when he lets them go, he's going to give them a lot of riches from, from Egypt as well. We'll see that when we get to Exodus, and they'll come out of the land back into the land of Canaan. And then you're going to have this repeat, except for the second time, Abraham goes into the land of Babylon, and then what happens? The same thing. Babylon tries to, to take his wife, and, and Abraham is able to get his wife back and come back out of, out of Babylon. So looking at this, the history of Israel, the history of the Lord's people, his church, his bride here on earth, after they go back to Canaan, establish their land. And, and by the way, going back, there's going to be some fighting. There's going to be some violence. There's going to be something to, to create their, their land. Then there's going to be this Babylonian period where they're going to be pulled out. And again, they're going to be tempted. What happened with, with Daniel Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, and they're told that they have to worship the Babylonian gods, and they have to, so they're trying to take the bride and make her the husband of the Babylonian gods. And then by a strong hand, God is going to send in the Persians and going to liberate them, and they're going to return back to Israel. So if you want to know the whole history of God's bride, Israel, here on earth, look at Abraham and Sariah. They're prophetic. Their life is going to forecast the whole rest of the Bible and what's going to happen. It's amazing. Okay. Sarah is described as extremely beautiful. 
And I think that's important as well. And, and not only is she described as extremely beautiful, uh, I have here a description from the Dead Sea Scrolls. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'll just read the description of the, of the guards because this, this plays prominently in a couple different texts. Uh, one, of the, the, one of the Egyptian guards says, How excellent and beautiful is the expression on her face. How pleasing and how delicate is the hair on her head. How beautiful are her eyes. How pleasing is her nose and all the bloom of her face. How lovely is her breast and how beautiful is all her fairness. Her arms, how beautiful. Her hands, how perfect. Any glimpse of her hands is to be desired. How lovely are her palms and how long her thighs. No maiden. Oh, excuse me. I skipped a line. How long and slender are all the fingers of her hands. Her feet, how beautiful and how perfect are her thighs. No maidens or brides who enter to the bridal chamber are more beautiful than she is. The beautifulness of her beauty is superior to that of all other women, and her beauty is high above all of them. And with all this beauty, she possesses much wisdom, and the work of her hand is beautiful. So this is what the guards are saying in front of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's like, whoa, I, I need her. And, and Abraham's kind of warned that this is going to happen, and warned that if he says that he's her husband— that there, that, that Pharaoh will have him killed so that she can, he can have her as a wife. That's how beautiful she is. Just to give you an idea, and so the Bible says she's beautiful. But these other texts not only say how beautiful she is, but many different texts talk about how they just, they just go crazy for how beautiful she is. And, and Abraham, by the way, is not lying by saying that she's his sister. Oddly enough. Because she is Terah's daughter from a different mother. So Abraham's married to his stepsister. So, so Abraham's not lying. It's almost like on a resume for work. If you... if you, <laughs> What, Nate? Oh, no. I'm interested in seeing where this is going. <laughs> please. Please tell us about how you can lie on an application <laughs> for work. Keep going. It's not that you lie, it's that you choose to emphasize different experience, right? If you've, okay. if you've got some experience working with this versus some other experience working with that, and depending on what kind of job you're looking for, maybe you highlight this experience that you have, because you're, you're only limited to one page here. Let's, let's highlight the experience relevant to this and tell that side of the story and maybe cut some of this part out. I don't know. So basically, on all my job interviews, I just tell them I'm an Eagle Scout, and I'm, that means I'm supposed to get the job, right? That's what they tell you. <laughs> I don't think so, Tim. All right. So, yeah, right. Um, it is interesting. That is interesting. That that I love how they. Uh, I love I love your analogy of you just you just <laughs> leave out a couple of the other really important details just so that you uh, don't get killed. But yes. <laughs> All right, so she's a babe. She's a babe. Good work, Abraham. Why, why, why do they make such a big deal out of her being beautiful? I mean, apparently she's beautiful enough to celebrate. So, I mean, I don't know. I it, going back again to this idea that Israel or the church is beautiful. I think there should be beauty in the church, and it should be celebrated. That there is something beautiful about a church that allows for us to be born again, to make these covenants with God, that has this priesthood that's restored, that allows us 
to to participate in that salvation, to preach the gospel, to stand up and give talks as imperfect as we are, as much as we stumble, to be able to share how we feel and teach each other and work. I think there's real beauty in that. Okay. (laughs) I I don't think I've got you convinced on that one. I don't think you've got me convinced on that one either, but let's just keep going. Well, and the Lord talks about arise, put on your beautiful garments. And and when he talks about Israel in the sense that she's been un, 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 unfaithful to him, he says he discovers her nakedness, not, not in the sense of discovering her nakedness of having affair, but actually stripping all of these beautiful ornaments off her because he says, I have cut off your prophet from the land and your teachers and your wise people. And he talks about all of these people in comparison to your sounding brass and your tinkling and your whatever else ornaments that you're wearing, right? Sure. And as he strips all of them off and discovers her nakedness, and you're almost kind of coming back to this uh, this sin that that you, the church involves herself in, like Adam and Eve, she now finds herself naked in the garden, maybe discovering her own nakedness and saying, I have, I have been wrong. And the Lord is going to take his beautiful bride and say, you know, you are. Put on your beautiful ornaments. Put on your beautiful coverings. Put on your, in the sense of calling a prophet in a restored dispensation where he has someone that's speaking the, the word of the Lord, who who has guidance, who has people that are filled with the Spirit. And, and that's where the beauty comes is when the Spirit illuminates you and the Spirit guides you that this bride, when when... Guided by the Spirit, I don't know that there's anything more beautiful than than that. Okay. I'm with you on that. I think that's the significance okay. of Sarah's beauty. Or everybody's just freaking stoked on Sarah, and it's just like, this is a beauty worth <laughs> celebrating through the history of time. And in that case, I'm like, all right, I'm down. Let's celebrate it. Well, let's keep going. Let's keep rolling with this. <laughs> the next one is Abraham has to go fight for, well, Abraham's taking his nephew Lot, and when they get down into the land of Canaan, again, they're not, they're, they're not necessarily being governed by a king, by a kingdom, and they start to have their own disputes. Lot's herdsmen are fighting with Abraham's herdsmen because they're growing. Abraham's got a huge number of people with him, and it's causing problems. Abraham doesn't want to fight, and so he takes Lot and says, look, we're family. We love each other. There's no reason for us to fight over this. There's plenty of land. Tell me where you want to go. You take the land that you want, and I will separate and take the other land. What, what would you like? And Lot looks at all of the land, and he takes the choicest, the one that looks the greenest, the, the one that's going to be the most beautiful that's, that's next to Sodom. And he goes and he takes this land and he even pitches his tent towards Sodom. And so Abraham separates himself into kind of this desert area that's not quite as lush, not quite as, quite as promising, and he establishes himself here. And at this time, he builds an altar to the Lord and praises the Lord, and the Lord promises him that he will inherit the land, he will prosper the land, and again, you have these blessings of Abraham going to have seed, even though up to this point, he doesn't have children. Now, I think I think this is something you wanted to jump in on, Nate. Yeah, I kind of did, but I don't know if I want to anymore. Oh, my goodness. The, it, 
I do appreciate Abraham in this circumstance. And again, I, I, I do. Your wife made a great comment today in church about how Abraham had the faith of knowing that he was living right and that God was going to prosper him wherever he was, right? And there, I think there is a fantastic lesson to be learned from that. I, I know I, t- I have talked a lot, probably even on this podcast, about when I was quitting my day-to-day job, um, I kind of had a sit-down meeting with, my, with the owner of the company and my boss, and he was really encouraging. And, and he basically said, you know, you, I believe that as long as you're doing everything you can to live the way that you're supposed to, you have the right to call an, on God to prosper you and sustain you in whatever it is that you're doing. And I've, I've tried to take that very seriously, and, and I actually have a pretty deep testimony of that, right? And so there is, there is something that I actually love about that part of this too. But unfortunately, it also kind of just gives you a little bit of insight into Lot that's maybe not the most flattering. Is that fair? Yeah, I think so. And, um, and as we're going to learn a little bit later too, and again, I don't want to jump the gun too much, there is something to be said for, for Abraham always being willing to be a peculiar people, right? And to be a stranger in a strange land and where, as these stories kind of continue, where Lot almost kind of assimilates himself into a more wicked city and a wicked culture and is totally, I guess, fine with his kids marrying people outside of the covenant, but not just outside of the covenant, but like wicked people outside of the covenant. And... Um, establishes himself, you know, in a city as a judge or or, or somebody that sits at the gate. I don't remember the exact phrase that, that I was reading about. But where Abraham is recognized throughout the rest of his life as a God-fearing, you know, chosen son of God, even by people that are maybe not religious or definitely don't believe the same thing that Abraham does, he's respected because he is willing to be... Um, righteous and peculiar and separate and live what he believes and have people have no doubt about that where Lot kind of is more of the I don't know he's not as committed he's definitely not as um, he's not as focused on on trying to be a peculiar person and almost kind of assimilates himself and I think that there's there's some pretty amazing lessons to be learned in that too of how you look at the respect that Abraham has versus the respect that Lot has. And and I, I, this this might be this might be down the road, but maybe it's just something to keep in mind kind of as we're reading you know going through the next few weeks worth of this. Yeah, I love the insight. And I Abraham saved Lot. Oh yeah, like literally saved famine. him. Yeah, he he brought him down. And and he saved him physically from dying but spiritually in in restoring the truth and restoring this this true god worship and eventually as you're alluding to he's going to save him from Sodom and Gomorrah and the destruction that comes from from wickedness and his consequences and he would have every right to say lot being his nephew look i'm older i i i deserve this i've brought you with me I am going to take the land that looks best for me, and I want you to go and, and take this land. But Abraham 
it shows a lot of his character to put others first. And we'll see that when he goes to save Lot. And, and Lot, having the opportunity to choose, if you have the first choice and you really are grateful to your uncle that did everything, wouldn't you be... You'd be more cool than that. Because he was not cool about this. Yeah, like, here, Uncle, you've done a lot for me. I yeah. want to show my appreciation. Why don't you take the more green land? You take this great spot. Honestly, I appreciate everything you've done. Just throw me throw me the scraps, and I'll be stoked. And, and because I know if I need help, I can come back yes! to you. Because you've helped me how many times before? Yes! But he kind of takes full advantage and puts himself first where Abraham's willing to put everyone else first. And we see that. And, and it works out to Abraham's advantage because it, Lot, joining himself to Sodom, now because he owns land, there, there's legal obligations to Sodom. And he's associated with this. And Sodom has an agreement with a larger empire, with Ketelamar, who's been ruling them for 15 years. As we talked about these treaties at the very beginning, these Hittite treaties. And their treaty is that they have to pay so much tribute to this larger kingdom. Well, after 15 years, they decide, you know what? We don't want to pay this anymore. We don't think that, that this is a good relationship anymore. We're bigger. We're stronger. We don't have to pay them. So they rebel. And the king comes down, Kedlamar, and wipes them out. Mm -hmm. And he takes... He, he, okay, I was going to take a portion, but now I'm taking all of you, and you're all coming with me to my kingdom. So he raids Sodom and Gomorrah. He raids all of these cities. He takes the people captive, and he takes all of their treasure and their gold and their possessions and whatever else, and their army is on their mar march back up to their land. And Abraham gets wind of this. And so he goes to the people that are following him, and he says, I need volunteers. Who's, who wants to come? And this is the first recorded ever special ops mission. Yeah, baby. In the Bible. And he takes these trained men of war, about 300, and they go at nightfall. And, and these people, they just won the war. They've been celebrating. They have a feast, debauchery, and they're passed out drunk. And in the night, while they're passed out, Abraham and his men slay them defeat the kings, and restore Sodom and Gomorrah and a bunch of other kings their kingdoms. And as he's coming back from victory here, you're also going to see the characteristics of two other people similar to Abraham and Lot, and that's Melchizedek, king of Salem, versus the king of Sodom. Mm -hmm. Melchizedek comes and brings bread and wine and blesses Abraham. You're, you're great. You're powerful. Thank you. This is yours. Melchizedek doesn't ask for anything in exchange. And still, Abraham pays his tithes to him because he's a righteous king. And then in contrast, you have the king of Sodom, who tries to make this sound like it's a good deal. He says, look, you can keep all of the gold, all of the silver, all of the possessions, whatever, but... Let me keep the people. The people are mine. And, and you think about this from a business standpoint. What, what's the better model? Paying, paying money up front, even if it's more money, 
or to have the residual income through taxation yep. and whatever else for the next 20 years. And labor and all of those other things, like the, the means of creation and not just a one-time payment. Yes, the resources, the abilities, the growth, the families, all of the above. Okay. And Abraham says, you can, you can keep the people and you can keep the loot. Hmm. And by the way, Abraham, the king has no righteous claim to any of the booty, <laughs> right? He didn't. He lost. Yeah, it's totally. not his. He's yeah. out. So it might sound like fairness on his part, like, "Oh, you can have the gold, and I'll keep." No, he's out. He's entitled to zero. This is all Abraham's. And Abraham not only says, "I don't want the people," but he says, "I don't want the booty." If, Why? It's just filthy lucre. He says, "I don't want anyone saying that it's because of them that I was made rich." It's only God that's going to. Oh, make okay, I like it. I he love says, it. Yeah, I don't want you taking credit for God blessing me. Okay, this is great. And it's also, like I said, Abraham's life is a prophecy, right? When Israel comes out of Egypt, they go in there and they are commanded by Moses and Joshua do not take one piece of booty from the lands that you conquer. God is going to make you rich not these people, and I don't want you profiting off of them. And remember, there's one guy that kind of steals something and hides it in his tent, and they find out, and we'll, we'll get to that story. Kind of a cool story, but Can't that's later wait. in the Old Testament. Okay. But it's a foreshadow. And, and Abraham, again, in his goodness, overly generous. He has a claim on the people and the gold, and he says, no, I'm not going to lean on men to make me rich. I'm going to lean on God to, to establish it. Because he promised me seed. He's still waiting for that child that has yet to come. Okay. And it, it, it deserves some mention here, even if I haven't quite pieced this all together. And maybe I'll leave this to a lot of you, the listeners, to help me piece this together. This theme is one of the most common themes in not just the scriptures, but literature in medieval times and in English themes. That, that is the theme of the, the feast, where you drink and you pass out and you die. In fact, there was a guy that wrote a paper on this, and it's, he entitled it Dying for a Drink. And, and he says it's so common. He's, and he's not writing about here in the Genesis account. He's writing about the Old English, in particular Beowulf. You know the story Beowulf, Nate. I do. And it's such a common, it happens five different times in the story of Beowulf, where they are in the Grand Hall, and they have a feast, and the enemy comes on them, or, or Grendel the monster comes on them, and kills them, and they die during their night while they're sleeping. It's, it's drink, sleep, and die. And, and it doesn't just happen... It, over five times in Beowulf, it happens in, in the Odyssey with Agamemnon, with the suitors at the end, over six times in there. It's just a very common theme. You, you see it, Noah getting drunk after the flood, passing out, and then the bad thing that happens with Ham. Uh, you're going to see it throughout the scriptures. Uh, Nephi, if you want to take a reference to the Book of Mormon, when Laban gets drunk, passed out, and then he gets his head cut off. It's almost like drinking combined with sleeping equals death. <laughs> It's, it's scary. It's scary. Why is it such a common theme? What, what, why is it going to be repeated and throughout the scriptures, throughout literature, throughout all times? Is it, is it a lesson on overindulgence? Is it a lesson on temperance and control and making sure that it's measured? And I, I don't know. Did you just going to say anything? 
I was just going to say, you had kind of mentioned earlier, it's just the eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we could die. Yeah, it gives you a whole new appreciation for that line. Yeah, <laughs> because tomorrow there's a very real chance we all get killed tonight after we're drunk partying. It is. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. In fact, binge drinking alone without somebody coming and killing you sometimes it ends up in death. I wonder because a lot that term is used as a uh, as a temptation from Satan, right? And that's like, hey, live life to the fullest because because uh, you never know when it's going to end or it's probably going to end tomorrow, anyways. But it does actually make you rethink that that rethink that statement even a little bit too. Um, but yeah, I don't know. That's interesting. And and I was talking to Mark, a friend of mine, about this, and and he was saying that yeah, you see this all over in the medieval. I mean, go back to the Vikings, Valhalla, the idea, the mead, yeah. and you drink and you go and you celebrate, and dying in battle is a glorious death. Where what happens? You go right back to the same hall and you drink and whatever. I know that's like paradise for these guys. Yeah, that's that's what it is. And if I get killed in here in paradise while I'm celebrating, well, it's just more celebrating in the hall. Like that's that's life. That's all there is to it. But as I was talking with him, he said, you know. You think about these battles, and, and we are so detached from death today. We don't even have to kill our own food. We go to the store, and it's all packaged yeah, know, right? for us, right? Yeah. And, and when we fight our wars today, you fight them from a distance. You look down a scope when you pull yep. a trigger. You're pressing a button. You send a drone in. You send in a drone or drop a bomb or hit a button here or a trigger there, and people or just, die. Or just like cyber warfare. Yeah, you know, exactly. Yeah, but back in this time... You're going with these people, and you're looking them in the eyes when you kill them. And to get people excited for that or or riled up to be able to commit these atrocities or do these hard things that you normally wouldn't do, to get the drums beating and your your blood boiling and to get you stirred up in a fervor that you can go into battle and fight these wars hand-to-hand, you're so junked up or or... You almost have to get rid of a little bit of the you have you have to get rid of the governor a little bit. Yeah, and and it almost takes drinking to kind of calm that back down. Interesting. Bring you back down to earth, and at that point you're in, you're in a stupor. You're you're so worn out, and and just the range of emotions and what you're feeling and what you're doing. It's just, you just want to disconnect. Yeah, and it doesn't matter if you're going to die that night. I mean, that's that. Interesting. Kind of a bleak view of life, but. The last, the last thing I'll say about this, and I'll move on. As, as evil as that pattern seems, I would like to remind you that Christ, the night before he dies, holds a feast in which he drinks with his apostles and says, this is the last time I will drink of the vine until I come again, right? And here he is eating and drinking and being merry with his apostles at the same night that he's sentenced to die, at the same night that he's brought before the court, the same night that he's going to Gethsemane and having his life crushed out of him. And maybe as we've been talking about this, this dual nature of things and the imitation versus the real thing, maybe there's something more to it even than that. And, and maybe there is something sacred about it that, that, looks flimsy as you see the imitation. I don't know, for what it's worth. Something good for everybody to ponder. If you have any insights, please feel free to send it along to us in comments or emails. So, Okay, let's keep moving on. Yeah, and trying to be cognizant of time, I don't know. We've got like 
another two lessons we can do of Abraham. So if we're running tight, we can wrap some up into there. Um, we've we're got, definitely running a little tight, but are there any other big highlights that uh, that we need to to hit on this week? We're not into we're not into uh, the binding of Isaac yet, right? Not yet. Okay, just want to make not, sure we're not into the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and we're not into the binding of Isaac. Okay, so what is there anything else that we want to just touch on real quick before we wrap it up? Yeah, last thing, uh, we'll put a bow on this, and if if we've missed anything from Abraham, we need to come back in the next week or so. We can f- absolutely hit it. There is there are documents uh, from the practice of law in the ancient world. And, and it provides us with a lot of understanding or at least uh, context to what happens with Abraham. When you look at Abraham and his wife being barren and not able to have children, and then she provides a handmaid, Hagar, to Abraham for, her to have a, uh, for him to have a child with. And then Sarah's upset with the handmaid and wants to get rid of her because now she seems like she's the, 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 the real wife of the relationship and Sarah starts to feel like the handmaid. And so she sends her out. It's kind of a weird story, I think, for us to wrap our minds around. But the, the cool thing is, in Assyria, we have documents from the practice of law. And I have right here a copy of a marriage contract dating to either the 12th or 13th century. So this is right at the same time that Abraham was alive, at the same place in the world where he was alive. And, and looking at this contract, I think this will help us understand that story a lot better. It says, Lakipum, I, I don't know exactly how you pronounce that, so we're just going with Lakipum, has married Hatala, daughter of Anishru, in the country. Lakipum may not marry another woman, but in the city. So, so, so he can't marry another woman from outside of the city. Okay. He may marry a Hyrodule. And a Hyrodul here in this case is is like a concubine. He can have a wife, but she doesn't get first wife status as long as she's from the city. She gets like a second wife status. If within two years, Hatala does not provide him with offspring, she herself will purchase a slave woman, and later on, after she will have produced a child by him, he may then dispose of her by sell, wheresoever he pleases. Now, there's a footnote on he when it says he may then dispose of her. And if you go to the footnote, it says the rendering is based on the fact that the pronoun and the verb are masculine, but considering that the masculine is also used throughout in the following two clauses, even when Hatala, the bride, is clearly the subject of the first and the second, it might be presumed that she is the subject here also which would configure better with the fact that it is she who has to provide for the slave woman to begin with. So going back, we're going we're gonna to read this as she. She may then dispose of her by sell wheresoever he please, she pleases. Should Lakipkum choose to divorce her, he must pay her five minus of silver. And should Hatala choose to divorce him, she must pay, five minus, she must pay him five minuses of silver. Witnesses, Masa... Asherishti Kal, Talia, and Shupianika. So it's cool that they have these witnesses. It's cool they have this contract. But the terms of the contract dictate that if within two years she can't produce offspring for him, then she is under financial obligation to hire a handmaid to produce offspring. 
And when that handmaid produces offspring, because she is the one financially obligated to provide the, the, the handmaid, she also has the say in what happens to the handmaid. So go back to the story of Abraham, and you're like, well, that's weird that she would provide him with Hagar. That's nice of her to try to do that, knowing that she can't. It's not just a nicety. This was probably terms in the contract that she had signed based on that part of the world at that time that she had to pay for a handmaid to come in and provide mm. a, a child if she couldn't. And then you look at it and say, well, why wouldn't Abraham step in and keep Hagar? Well, Abraham is bound by the contract because she is the one that purchased the handmaid. She also has the say of what happens to the handmaid once the offspring is produced. So that's why Abraham goes to her and says, what would you, what would you have done with her? And it's up to Sariah or Sarah to choose the fate of the handmaid. So I think looking at this legal text provides with a, li- a little more context to this world and understanding what's happening and realizing that this was the social terms of that time period, given their norms, given what they understood. That's how marriage worked in the ancient world. Well, it explains a lot. It explains explains uh, also why... I mean, there was kind of a weird disconnect that it's been hard. I've I've seen various explanations on like why Sarah would bring um, this. Uh, uh, do you pronounce it Hagar or Hagar? You know, I've heard. Doesn't it matter. Days. So, anyways, she brings in Hagar and is like, "Okay, cool. Um, have a child with my husband." And then, as soon as she does, like, is immediately just like, "Actually, no. I'm. I get out of here." And you're like, "Oh man, that that flipped really quick." But this would at least add a lot of context to that and maybe help explain that probably quite a bit better. Yeah, and, and I, we are so far removed from that world. It's, we look at it in terms of, of how we understand things today, and, and I don't know that they did everything right, but that, that was the social structure, the social fabric. That was the laws of the land. It, it's kind of interesting. And we'll see some of those laws provide some context for some of the negotiations that Abraham does with his neighbors later when he's looking to buy property. Cool. All right. Um, we'll be continuing on, I'm assuming, with Abraham next week, right? Yeah. We'll get to Abraham. He entertains three holy men and gets the promise with Isaac. It's a little bit into this week's lesson, but because Isaac and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, I, I, I feel like we just need to wrap it in the next week. We've got okay. too much okay. too Let's much we've it. covered already this week. Okay, thank you for listening, um, and until next week. See ya.